Sean just let me know that Susan Bixby just emailed him back and let him know that their trip was canceled late last night. And so they're not heading to the Holy Land um, because of that. And so just pray for them as they process through and possibly look at doing that at a later date. All right, I'd like to call the members meeting to order. Uh, before we pass out the ballots, I want to let you know. Actually, we can go ahead and pass those out, Rob. That's fine. So if you are uh, a member... Uh, of Community Baptist Church, then make sure you get one of these ballots. On this ballot, you will see um, the statement at the top. As a voting member of Community Baptist Church, I affirm the pastor's and deacon's recommendation to move forward with the process of pursuing plurality of pastors. Let's uh, clarify exactly what this is. This is not adopting, but the gaining the congregation's approval to pursue the process. So every step along the process, uh, as we move forward, will also come to the congregation, and then we will move forward with this together. So this is just kind of a stamp of approval to begin the process. i also like to clarify there's something unique here, and that is that um, if you would feel the need to vote no, there are actually four options there for a reason. Uh, I mentioned in the question and answer time that there would be several reasons why someone would vote no, uh, could vote no, and, um, and we would love to know maybe the reason um, that is prompting you, if that would be the case. And so that would help us as we move forward. And so you'll see the yes, I affirm uh, the unanimous decision of the pastor's and deacon's recommendation. And then you'll also see below that, uh, please, uh, under that note, just one is there, one that would best reflect um, if, you know, if that would be the case in your heart so that we would know how to move forward. Um, and so if you would just please take time to fill that out. And then once you're done, if you could fold that in half and pass it to the aisle, and the ushers will come back and collect that. Once you have that finished, you can take your Bibles and open to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And my opportunity is to bring the word to you on Sunday evenings. We've been slowly marching through the book of Daniel. We've been following the life of Nebuchadnezzar as he has taken a stand against God. Uh, beginning in chapter 1 in verse 1 in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And we have been tracking Nebuchadnezzar's uh, posture towards the king of, king, through chapter, king of kings through chapter 1, through chapter 2, and through chapter 3. And now we turn to chapter 4, and we'll be working through this in the sermon this evening. Let's pray, and then we will look at this passage of scripture. Heavenly Father, as we look at this um, 
Scripture this evening, would you do a work in our hearts through it? Help us better see your character. In your name we pray. Amen. In order to understand what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's life, we have to trace how he's responding every time that God inserts himself into the picture. So over and over again in the book of Daniel, we have Nebuchadnezzar says this, and then God inserts himself, and Nebuchadnezzar responds. Whoa, God is really powerful. Whoa, God is really good, and all this type of thing. And so we've been tracing his responses to God, and it really is coming to a climax here in chapter 4. Many of you know that I thoroughly enjoy watching college football. Saturdays in the fall are a very important time. I try not to talk about it too much from the pulpit, but for many of you, we have little side conversations about certain things. Uh, October 7th, 1916 was a college football game that was historic in nature because Georgia Tech played the University of the Cumberlands, and it was a revenge game. Just several months earlier in the year, Cumberland, the Cumberlands, whatever their uh, Cumberland Bulldogs, I guess it'd be, came to Georgia Tech, and uh, Georgia Tech couldn't really field a baseball team. Cumberlands knew that, but they wanted to play them anyway, and so uh, the Cumberlands came, University of Cumberlands came and just destroyed Georgia Tech on the diamond, and um, the football team coming around to football season decided that they were going to make a statement out of the football team when the University of the Cumberlands came to play football. John Heisman was their coach, the infamous John Heisman at that point, and it still stands as the highest scoring deficit between teams and the highest scoring game of all time in college football history. Georgia Tech beat Cumberland 222 to zero as they made a statement on the football field as to who, in fact, had the better team. And if you know anything about football, that is astounding and impressive. 222 to zero. I don't think it is a, uh, a, an overstatement to say we will never see anything like that again in college football. What we have in this passage is we have Georgia Tech versus Cumberland, and God is like Georgia Tech, right? And Nebuchadnezzar is like Cumberland, and he's just going to smash him. Okay, that's basically, if you want to bring this into modern day, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a contest that's being played, but it's not even a contest. I mean, there's nothing here that is even close to resembling any sort of of approaching a contest towards God whatsoever. And so with that picture in your mind, that football picture in your mind, I don't know if that's appropriate or not, but we're going to begin reading this chapter, and you're going to see what I'm talking about. So let's look at uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar begins actually with a testimony, and then he goes back in time. So he kind of begins with the end, and then he goes back in time. He begins with his testimony that is his mindset actually at the end of chapter 4. And here's what he says. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So that's his testimony 
Often we do the same thing. We can look back and we say, let me tell you the story about my life. When I look back on my life, God has done some amazing things. And then you launch into your testimony. And that's what we see here in chapter 4 at the beginning. This is 35 years after the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar has done what no other king has been able to do. And that is, he has conquered the known world and set up a worldwide empire. And so begins his testimony in verse 4. Let's look there together. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Notice the difference here. He recognizes that Daniel's not only able to tell him the interpretation of the dream, but the dream as well. He told all the other people the dream, but he's not going to tell that to Daniel because he knows Daniel as we, as we see in verse 9. I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is a pagan king recognizing that there's just something different about Daniel. And that happens in our world as, as the unsaved will look at the church and they'll say, there's just something about you. I don't know what it is. There's something about you that's different. Notice that he refers to Daniel, but then when he goes back and references his actual statement, he, he quotes that he called him Belteshazzar, the name of my God, meaning that he's still a rejecter of the true God. Verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay there in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fled from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold a watcher, a holy one, it's an angel, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of his roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by a decree of the watchers, and the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. There's your reason for the dream, for this reason, that everyone would know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. It's pretty straightforward. The king has a super weird dream. Nobody can interpret it. This, he tells us what the dream is. He says, Daniel... 
Tell me the vision of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. Tell me what all this means. Tell me the visions here. There's a phrase that we see in this passage that we just read that's also echoed way back in his introduction, and it's a phrase, the most high. And this is really key, because the purpose of this dream is that he would recognize that there's someone above him, that no matter who the most powerful person on this world is, when they stand up against God, the score is going to be a million to zero, you know? Like, like there's, there is a most high God, as we've said often here at church. The hardest truth to grasp in all of life is that there is a God, and I am not him, right? And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar needs to see. The most high. God is more powerful than anything in the heavens and the earth. He is the most highly exalted. He is the most the God most high. You'll see in verse 24, 25, 32, 34. And then God's going to step in and actually reveal his status of the most high God. And it's obvious that Daniel knew exactly what this dream meant. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, were dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Daniel's thinking, yeah, because you don't know what it means, right? Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew up and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, believe the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, there it is again, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you should be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Look at the next phrase. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to notice Daniel's posture towards the king. Don't you remember, this is a wicked king. This is not a nice man. This is someone who's kidnapped from Jerusalem, taken um, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, showed his rage. I mean, this is someone who 
is, uh, by all accounts, a, a terrible dictatorial leader, okay? And when Daniel sees the interpretation that is to come true of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he does not say, it's about time. He got what's coming to him. I mean, how many of us with the oppressive regimes that we have available today, if one of those dictators were taken down in a humiliating fashion, if they were, if they were shamed in public, there's a little bit of a cheer that goes out from our hearts because they deserved it, right? But Daniel doesn't think that at all. And I, and I believe his attitude is one to be commended here. That his desire is for Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. I mean, look at, uh, at his statement uh, in verse 19. My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. I don't wish this on anyone. I, I, I hate to even tell you what this means for your life, Nebuchadnezzar. And then again, look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Listen to me. If you know what's right for you, king, take counsel. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. He's calling him to repentance. He's saying, turn from your sin. It doesn't have to be this way. God works out perfect justice for those who remain in their sin. But for those who turn from their sin, turn to God, God is a God of mercy and love. And in His grace, God offers Nebuchadnezzar through the mouth of his prophet, God offers Nebuchadnezzar mercy. He offers him mercy in two ways, in giving him Daniel. Well, first of all, in revealing the dream in the first place, of giving him the warning. This could have just happened, bam, but he didn't. He gave him the warning. And then he gave him Daniel to interpret this warning for him and to, to bring this, uh, this sermon, per se, to him. Turn to God and find mercy. And then not only that, but he also gives him time. He gives him time. When you look down at your scriptures, you'll see in verse 28, all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, but look at verse 29, at the end of 12 months. It took 12 months from the time of this warning to the judgment, the, the repercussions of his sin to kick in. It didn't happen immediately. Very, very rarely, very rarely do we see immediately the negative consequences of us choosing sin. Often it starts slowly. You know, I, I took this step into sin and nothing really happened. You know, I said this and people thought it was funny. Or I just looked at this one thing and everything's going to be okay. Or I just took, you know, it was just 20 bucks or, or whatever it is, you know. And very rarely in our lives do we see immediate negative consequences for sin. Usually, that sin 
as, as we'd say, you know, down south, the chickens will come home to roost, right? That eventually that sin will catch up with you because you can't sin and win. So just like we're entering into harvest season and, you know, if you're into farming, I'm sure harvest time is a very busy time, but it's also a very rewarding time, right? Because everything that you've done all year is coming to fruition. And, um, and, and planting time is hard because you put out all the work and all the money up front, and then you've got to sit back and, and wait and tend the garden, tend the field, and tend the garden, but you're not going to receive the fruit of your labor for, for time to come. You know, we planted a, a garden again this year, and again it ended in disaster. Um, we planted too much in our raised beds, and so at the beginning it looked really nice, but soon we discovered that things get bigger than you expect them to get, and so it became overrun, and then we realized that by the time that everything was coming out to be harvested in these tomatoes and in our peppers and all those things, we were going to be out of town. Isn't that great? You know, we put in all this work, and then all of a sudden it's there and we're gone. Uh, and then on top of that, we're going to come back and harvest everything, and then we got sick, so we're gone for another week, and then my brother had to get married, so then we're gone for another week, and it was like, oh my goodness, we came back and it's all rotten, and all of that work that we put in came to fruition, and it's no good. So we, uh, it wasn't all waste. We, we called our neighbor and said, listen, go get whatever you want um, if you can find your way through the jungle, right? But, uh, but, but that's the way that, that sowing and reaping works, is that you always reap later than you sow, and you always reap more than you sow. If, if farming was a one-to-one game, nobody would be in it, right? And so we see Nebuchadnezzar here who has been sowing the seeds of his sin. God, in his mercy, has given him warning after warning after warning after warning after warning and finally comes down and says, I have revealed to you that I'm the Most High God. I'm inserting myself into your story and I'm giving you one last warning to turn away. And 12 months goes by and Nebuchadnezzar had not memorized Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. I wonder if in these 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar wondered if the dream was going to come true. I'm sure right away, as all of us, if we have sin in our lives, we wonder about the consequences and then maybe perhaps nothing happens and we take one more step and nothing happens. We brace ourselves and then after a while we forget about the warnings until the chickens come home to roost. God is always true to his word. Always. God's promises will always be fulfilled. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, look at the personal pronouns here. Is, this, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty? It's almost as if God's patience hit the tipping point. And it's a little bit of a simplification in regards to the nature of God. 
But as we see throughout all the Old Testament, God is a merciful God, but he is always true to his word. And friend, listen carefully. If you are dabbling in sin, turn back now. Turn back now. While the words were still in the king's mouth, verse 31, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, verse 32, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar, until you figure out that there is a God and it is not you. Out of my grace and mercy, I will humble you. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and he did this by driving him insane. For many years, this was seemed impossible, irrational even, that this could ever happen. Now we know it's called boanthropy. It's a medical condition where a person believes that their life would be better if they lived as an animal. Now, I probably know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, I've seen some of that on social media. If you're a teenager, you think, wait a minute, I've got friends of my in my class, who think that they're certain animals. And was uh, speaking with someone who had a relative teaching in the public school system. And they said that there is, uh, there is someone in their class who um, identified as a dog, and um, they couldn't do anything about it, and would only talk to them in yips and barks and howls. Okay. Now, I do not think that is the same he- thing here. You say, why? Well, because... If that teenager was forced to live in a doghouse outside and eat canned dog food and be treated like a dog, perhaps they would change their tune, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar here is not identifying as a cow. He's been driven insane and is living on the plains of the field, living exposed to the elements. It's a mental insanity condition that actually causes someone to live like an animal. And the scientific community confirms that. And we need to be careful when I say that. I don't say that to like prove the Bible's true. We got to be careful with that. Because sometimes when it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, did you see what they found in the Red Sea? They found chariot wheels that are covered in barnacles at just this point. Is it amazing the Bible's true? It's like, yeah, it's always been true. I don't need that to tell me that the Bible's true. Okay, so we don't ever want to look at scientific discoveries that support scripture and, and all of them will, you know, and because and scripture is accurate. We don't want to look at that as be like, oh, good, whew, the Bible's true. But I tell you that to tell you that the Bible is reasonable and things and, and discoveries like the medical discovery of this boanthropy helps us understand that as crazy as it sounds, this actually does happen or people go insane in this way. Notice two things. The timing and the duration of this punishment from God was determined by God alone. I want you to see that. 
Some people view Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation as like he turned into a cow until he repented. But that's not the way this worked. He was under God's judgment until God was done. And God changed his mind. The duration and the timing show the mercy and grace of God. Verse 34, at the end of the days, at the end of this judgment, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's interesting to contrast the difference between his statement of pride in I, I, me, my, and his statement of humility in he, his, him. Because once again, humility is not a self-centered, I'm so bad, I'm so low, I'm so poor, I'm no good, let's go all eat worms, you know, or whatever. That's still pride, because it's still I, 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 I. A true humility is represented when your eyes are cast to the Lord. Verse 36, at the same time my reason returned to me, my counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. Look at the very last phrase. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. There's your key. There's your key. Psalm 75. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up. Another, Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. James 4, verse 6, he gives more grace, even as we saw this morning, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As we've been looking at these accounts, we've tried to single out truths about God's character and then principles that we can apply to our lives for living in a pagan culture. And so we'll go through these. I have six truths that we'll see briefly, and then three principles for living in a pagan culture. Number one, God in his mercy and grace will do whatever it takes to remind you that he is God and you are not. God in his, Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation was an act of mercy and grace. It was God stepping in and saying, your eternal, your eternal state is more important than your earthly position. And so I will bring things into your life now to humble you so that you can be exalted for all of eternity in heaven. We've, most of us who, who've lived um, 
any length of time have been put in those situations where you come out of something and you go, you know what, Lord, I needed that. Yeah, I needed that. I needed to remember that there is a God and I'm not him. Number two, God determines the timing of your trials. Listen carefully. You will not suffer one minute more than he controls, nor will you suffer one minute less. This means that if you're in a trial right now, it's because God has ordained this trial for you, and he's using it to grow your dependence on him. You know, I think sometimes we have this idea that, you know, God can bring trials in my life, but, but may, maybe, maybe if I just do something, it'll end it quickly, or Lord, if I can just learn this or whatever. But we have to understand that God in his providence and in his grace is in control every step of the way, of every minute. And you will not be out of that trial one minute more, or you will not be in that trial one minute more than God has ordained for you. And he's in control the entire time. Sometimes you think, Lord, why? Why now, right? I mean, seriously, couldn't this just been last year, or couldn't you have waited another six months? And yet God, in his timing of bringing trials into your life and releasing those trials from your life, is in his perfect timing. Number three, God owns the kingdom of men, and he gives authority to whomever he will. There is not one authority on this planet that God has not given authority to. You say, I don't understand that. You know, I don't either. But one day we will. But we have to be clear and see God as Nebuchadnezzar did and say, you are the one who sets up all authorities. Along with that, number four, Proverbs 21.1, we could just quote, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as a river of water. He turns it wherever he wills. God, there is no authority on this earth who is outside of God's control. All authorities are under the rule and reign of God, and he uses them as he sees fit. Number five, we can just quote the last verse of chapter four. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Friends, no one is untouchable. No one is beyond the reach of God. My dad used to tell me, I think you've gotten a little bit too big for your britches. You ever heard that? In other words, you need to step down just a little bit. That strikeout was good for you. And I'm like, oh, you know, whatever. And we need to recognize that no one is beyond God's reach. I want you to look for, for number six, I want you to look back at verse two. Turn to verse two, chapter four and verse two, and I want you to see in Nebuchadnezzar's own words how he views his trial. Verse two, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. 
Humiliation is for the sinner's good. Humiliation is for the sinner's good. God is not a vengeful God. It's not as though God looked down at Nebuchadnezzar and was threatened any more than Georgia Tech was threatened when that football team took the field and they looked on him probably with a little bit of pity and said, you're about to get what's coming to you. God wasn't threatened by Nebuchadnezzar. That's not why he humbled him. He humbled him because it was good for him. Because it was best to suffer to see God's sovereignty. Truths about God's character. Let's look at principles for living in a pagan culture and we'll wrap this up. Number one, through your humbling, God is allowing you to see him in his rightful place. Not all of your trials are a result of sin in your life. However... God may bring all sorts of events into your life as trials to humble you and bring you back to him. Here's what we mean by that. Trials have a purpose. Don't buy into the man-centered viewpoint that everything good in my life is from God and everything bad in my life is from Satan, right? Like, I stub my toe, Satan's out to get me today, you know, or whatever. When you have to realize that we have a God who serves over all of that, And yes, there may be trials in your life that you are suffering as a result of a consequence for your sin. And that consequence is there to remind you that sin will destroy you. And it's an act of love for God to pursue you that way. But there also may be trials in your life that God brings in, not because of anything that you did wrongly, but because God wants you to see him like you've never seen him him before. I mean, our minds immediately go to the book of Job, right? And how Job was an upright man at the beginning of the book who loved God and eschewed evil. And yet, at the end of the book, after his suffering, when God appears to him and the only answer he gives him is because I am God and you are not, what is Job's answer? I've heard about you with the hearing of the ears. But now I see you. It's like he learned something new about God he'd never known before. And that's what suffering does for us. It helps us see God like we've never seen him before. Number two, your responsibility is to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. That's it. Humble yourself. Come humbly. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but to recognize that God is king and there is no other. Third, a principle for living in this pagan culture, you are better off for your suffering. Nebuchadnezzar was better off for his suffering because this suffering helped him to the understanding of who God was. Suffering is an act of mercy from God as he brought suffering into Nebuchadnezzar's life so that Nebuchadnezzar would spend eternity in heaven. We're going to, I believe that the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 4 clearly reveal someone whose heart 
has bowed to the authority of God, who has accepted God for who he says he is, for who he is in fact and in right, the God of heaven, the Most High. And I believe that we're going to spend eternity with Nebuchadnezzar and we can ask him all about it because of suffering, because of humiliation. And so the question that I have at the end of my notes is a question that I think we should really end Nebuchadnezzar's life with because in chapter 5 and verse 1 it shifts to Belshazzar. We now have a new kingdom here because Nebuchadnezzar's page is closed and the end of his story is that he saw God as the most high. So the question is this, what will it take for you to recognize that the most high rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Would, will we learn from Nebuchadnezzar's mistake? Or will we have to make our own? What will it take for you to recognize what he recognized in the truth of who God is? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth from Scripture. We thank you for this passage that clearly points us to the ultimate an absolute sovereignty and providence of the Most High God. We thank you for giving Nebuchadnezzar to us as an example that we may see his life and recognize his humility and thus our lives would reflect that same humility as we pray through the name of Jesus.